So we are in a series entitled Becoming Who You Are, making our way through one of the New Testament letters called Ephesians. And those words and phrases that you just heard in that video, they are contained in that letter and more. And we're trying to understand what all of that means and how it applies to lives like ours. So here's how I want to start um, with us today as we look at this whole idea of fueling your faith. How does that happen? Let me introduce you to somebody who was a doctor back in the 1950s. He has a cool name. His name was Dr. Maxwell Maltz, and he was a plastic surgeon. And he was high on the practice of um, plastic surgery. In fact, in the 1950s, he wrote a very famous book at the time about the benefits of it and recommended that people undergo all kinds of plastic surgery, feeling like they would feel better about themselves on the other side of it. You know, you're anxious about how people view you and what they might say about you. You know, undergo plastic surgery and your life will be better and you'll feel better about it. Eight years later, he wrote another book, and he took it all back <laughs> and basically contradicted everything that he said in the first book. And do you know why? Because patient after patient came to him after surgery, and they had the same complaint. They said, you didn't change anything. I look exactly the same as I did before. And he would show them pictures. No, these were your cheekbones before, and here's what they look like after. This was your nose before, and what it looks like after. This was your chin before, and what it looks like after. And they go, no, you didn't change anything. And he said, it doesn't matter what's in the image. What matters is what is in our, and he coined this phrase that is very familiar to us, but it was a new one in the 1950s. It was what is in their self-image. And there's a vision or a lens through which we all view ourselves. And in this broken world of ours, as we come into this world, I want to suggest to you that our lens presents a distorted image of who we are. You ever been at the fun house and seen those mirrors that kind of make things get in all different shapes and sizes there. And that's funny, and yet I think many of us can relate to a picture that we might think of ourselves, that we look strange. And this is not just confined to men, you know, for women as well. There can be ways in which we view ourselves and we think that people are viewing us in certain ways. We have a distorted image. And what are the things that can contribute to that? I think there are a number of them. You know, our family of origin could be one of those. You know, that we grew up in a family where there was some wacky stuff going on. And to one degree or another, all of our families are kind of jacked up. You know, somebody once said, every family tree must be an oak tree because it's got a bunch of nuts in it. And so there are some things that happen there. But again, some can be more extreme um, than others. Um, significant life events. Uh, you know, it... It amazes me and saddens me that children who were exposed to abuse in one form or another often walk through their lives believing in one way or another, I deserved it, I invited it, and I did something to make it happen. And those kind of events can distort our view of an awful lot. Maybe it's our religion. Maybe it's not just a parent and maybe an impossible to please parent. Maybe we grew up in an environment where there was an impossible to, um, to please God. 
And the bar was so high that nobody on their best day could ever clear that. And so where does that leave me? And if God doesn't feel so good about me, then, you know, where, where am I at the end of all of that? Maybe our culture. And we live at a time where emotional struggles and mental health issues, and this is just a documented thing, are higher than they have ever been. And so why is it today, at this time in this culture, could it be that maybe the goalposts keep moving and we find it really hard to know exactly where we're supposed to be as a culture, but people seem to struggle more than ever. Maybe it's just in my own mind. And for reasons unknown to me, I have this internal conversation about who I am and what I'm like and what people think of me and if they knew the truth about me, that that would not end very well. In all kinds of different ways, we can have a distorted image. And so I wonder if that is one of the reasons why the Apostle Paul, who wrote this letter to people that he knew, to people that he cared about, to people that he loved, who were living in an environment where they were facing a lot of struggles. They were faith-wise in the minority. There was paganism and following the Jesus of the Bible was a difficult thing to do in that environment. And people were talking about them and pushing back and sometimes it was even getting pretty rough. And so what does Paul do to respond to that? Does he say, you know what? You need to fight back. You respond in kind. Or you need to get out of that place, get out of the city of Ephesus and get to a better place. He doesn't do either one of those things. What does he do right out of the chute? He holds up God's undistorted mirror of their identity when they have placed their faith and trust in Jesus. And he begins by saying to people who are feeling kind of weighed down, this is who you are. And it's not something that you have to achieve and you don't have to go on a quest in order to acquire all of this. You place your faith in Jesus and the only thing that the people did in all the verses that we've looked at so far is they believed. That means to put the full weight of your faith and trust on Jesus. And then God just pours all these aspects of relationship with him into the life of everybody who has put their faith and trust in him. And after that section, he begins the next section by saying this. And so for this reason, and the reason why I'm pausing here is because what he's about to say is based on what he has just said. And so when he held up that undistorted mirror of God, what kind of things was he talking about? Because he's just going to tell them, and I want this to be real in your life. Not just something that you know, but something that you live. But for this reason, what reason, Paul, what have you said to this point? Here's what he said, and we looked at this in the weeks gone by, that in Christ I am richly blessed. Every spiritual gift that God has at his disposal is available to the person who is in Christ. I am chosen by God. He set his affection on me. His love decided in my favor. And when did that happen? When I was a good person? No, it says before the foundation of the world. God did that. And I'm a loved child of God. And in the context of that culture, that means that he adopted you as one of his own. And there was no unadoption in that culture. You were there to stay. And we're free to follow. 
that he buys us out of the bondage of what holds us down and now there is the opportunity to live the life that God has in store for us. We are infinitely valued. God views us as an object of value. We are part of something bigger than ourselves. God is taking everything to an ultimate conclusion of his choice. There's another day coming and if it has not ended in joy yet, that means it has not ended but it is going somewhere where ultimately God will have the final say and it is gonna be eternally good. And I'm trusting in truth. That means I can live a faith that is not just spiritual words or rhetoric, but it is tied to an event that actually happened in time and space. It's something that I can hold on to. And I can live with hope. That means a present confidence because of a future reality and I'm anticipating future glory that eternally all will be well. And that's why Paul says, for this reason... For all those things that when you look into the unvarnished and undistorted mirror of God and his identity of who he makes you when you place your faith in him, for this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. So after that whole idea of identity, what is the next thing Paul does? He's going to pray for them. And why would he pray for them? And what is he going to pray for them? And I'll tell you this. I think what he prays is the key to living a passionate, thriving, alive faith in this broken world of ours and beyond. And I think what we're going to see is that he prays that they wouldn't just intellectually know something, but they would experience it. I do not cease to give thanks to you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Now, when we look at the word knowledge, we think, okay, in our Western mindset especially, we think information. We think there's something I need to know and I need to understand it. Maybe I even write it down in a notebook somewhere and then I put it on a shelf. That's not the word that he's using here because there's a kind of knowledge that is not just something that I know in my head. It's something that I know in my heart. It's something that I experience, something that I live. It's something that I know in a way that has made its way into day-by-day life. So let me see if I can illustrate it for us this way. Any Trace Leche fans out there? Trace Leche cake is just awesome. It is amazing. And if you don't know what that is, you need to get out more because it is really, really good. And here's, you know, the ingredients. Here's the recipe for making Trace Leche cake. And if I know something, right, I can look at that. I can even commit this to memory. Right, I can write it down on a notebook and then stick it on a shelf somewhere. I could even recite this if I memorize it. I could even learn these words in Greek and Hebrew. You know, what does five eggs mean? You know, how can you say that in Greek? You know, one of the languages that the Bible was written in. That's all good. That's all nice. But wouldn't you agree that it's different to know tres leche by experiencing it and by eating it? In fact, today, I have a little bit of Trace Leche up here. <laughs> and my amazing wife made this. It's fresh, homemade, um, last night. Yeah, we're eating cake in church today. In fact, I have enough for some other people here. Is there anybody who would like a piece of Trace Leche who's 
down here. Oh, come on, Angel. You don't have to be shy. I saw you nod. Come on down. There you go. And start eating it. Start eating it. Don't leave it. It's, it's not going to get any fresher. Well, let me come over here, guys. Come on down. Who wants to come on up here, young men? I got one more. One more, guys. Oh, there. Not shy. Not shy. Awesome. So let me ask you this question now. We can know something like this. And we can know something like this. And what Paul is praying for people that matter very much to him, who are in a difficult environment, context, I pray that what you see in the undistorted mirror of God and the identity that you have in him that he gave to you. You didn't earn it. You put your trust in him and he gave it to you. I pray that you would know that. And not just intellectually in your head, that it would take the 18-inch journey to your heart so that you could experience what that means day by day. I pray that you would know that. So his prayer continues, that the God of the Lord, our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge, experiential knowledge of him. And now notice this, what does that mean? Having the eyes of your heart enlightened so that you could see what God sees and not just know it, but experience it, live in it, and live out of it, and even engage life in a difficult place from that vantage point, seeing what God sees, which informs living the way that you live. And so as Paul's prayer, if we kind of break it down and put it into our own kind of words, here's how it begins. I pray that you would see what God sees. And that really invites us to have a better and better understanding of all that we have in that relationship with God. That's something we can explore really for the rest of our days. And then he goes on, having the eyes of your heart enlightened that you may know, and there it is again, and this is experiential, not just intellectual. It may begin there, but it makes its way into our hearts. What is the hope to which he has called you? What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might? So he's saying, based on all that you see in the undistorted um, mirror of God, May you know the hope, the riches, and the power that you have in that relationship. Let's break that down just a little bit. That you may know first what is the hope to which he's called you. We talked about hope last week. Hope is not wishful thinking. Hope is a present confidence based on a future reality. It's living here and now with assurance because we know that there and then God will have the final say. And one day is coming where he's going to make all things new. And there is nothing and no one that is going to be able to undo what God is going to do. And it will be eternally 
awesome and the way it was supposed to be. And so you know what that means living here in this world? It means that one day I can have a confidence that I will see my dad again unravaged by something called Alzheimer's. And a mother-in-law who is untouched by Parkinson's and all that comes with it. And I don't know who that is for you and what that means when you look at life. Somebody once described life as a long series of goodbyes. And I wish that wasn't true, but I'll tell you one day, all of that is gonna become untrue. Because one day, he will make all things new. And it does not say that he will make all new things. He will make all things new. And so we can live here and now knowing there's another day coming. And that can instill a hope that we don't find anywhere else in this world. And Paul said, I pray that you would know that. And not just know it in your head. That you could wake up every day and know that even when it's a hard day and it's a day of loss, there's another day coming. I can have confidence and assurance here and now because one day God will make it eternally different. He also says that you would know what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Now there's a bit of a challenge here, you know, in the writing, and it's real easy for us to read this as if to say, hey, think about all the riches you have in God, and there's plenty to think about down that road, but that's not what he's saying here. If you look at it real carefully, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? It's talking about God's inheritance in his people, and if you put your faith and trust in him, he views you as an inheritance. He views you as one of his riches. And I know the word saints, you know, in Utah can take on a little bit of its own meaning here. What does that mean? Saints simply means holy ones. And if you react by saying, oh, well, that must be for the spiritual superstars. Let me help you rethink that a little bit. The introduction to almost every letter in the New Testament begins by saying to the saints in and then the name of the city or the church is there. And can I just tell you this? Some of the churches in the New Testament were jacked up. They had issues. And there was conflicts and there were all kinds of, you know, disagreements and things like that that were happening. And yet, what do you see? Holy ones. Why is that? Because if we look at ourselves and we're honest, we go, man, I fall way short of being a holy one. It's because from God's perspective, he sees the end of the process, not just our current position. And one day we will be conformed to the image of Jesus, we're told. And so here and now, we may not be holy in every moment, but from God's perspective, he sees how the story ends. And when God looks at his people, when God looks at you, on the other side of putting your faith and trust in Jesus, he views you as his inheritance, as an object of infinite value. And yeah, that's just as true on your worst day as it is on your best day. Because his love for you does not change. Let me see if I can help us, you know, illustrate this a little bit. In this picture of three men, Walt Disney is in the middle, and you know his name really well. 
His lesser-known brother, Roy Disney, with an awesome first name, uh, was also a part of starting that whole thing. Walt Disney was the visionary and everything. Um, Roy was a little bit more involved in the nuts and bolts and things like that. And over on the left is an illustrator with a unique name and a great talent. His name was Ub Iwerks. And Ub was one of the original three that began what we know as the Disney Corporation. And each of these three men was given one-third of the Disney stock. And this was back in the 1930s. Well, Ub, who was a talented illustrator, created that image there that we know really well and many others that are familiar to us. He got an offer to actually become an illustrator for a company in New York. And so he left the Disney Corporation before it took off. And he sold his one-third stock in the Disney Corporation. And you know where this is going, don't you? Because what was that stock worth? How much did he sell it for in 1930? $2,920. Now, in fairness, back in 1930, he bought a house with that. And if you're younger, you're going, oh, he made a mortgage payment. No, he bought a house with that because <laughs> things have changed a lot. But still, if he had held on to that one-third stock for the rest of his life, what would it have been worth at the end of his life? $750 million. And if it was still around today in his name, you know, it would be worth just north of $50 billion. What's the moral of that story? <laughs> Do not underestimate your assets. And there's a God who looks at you, and you know what he sees? An inheritance. He sees an object of infinite worth, worth way more to him than $50 billion. And Paul says, I pray that you would know how much you matter to God to see the riches that he has in the saints, in the people who have put their trust in him. I pray that you would know that, and not just in your mind, but that you would know it in your life. And I pray that you would know what is the immeasurable greatness of the power toward us who believe. And the last thing he's going to talk about is power. And of these three um, topics that he illustrates here, I think this is the one that we're most likely to push back on and say, you know what, I hear you, but I don't think that's true, not me, because we're going to talk about power. And look at what Paul goes on to say, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. What he does here is a literary technique of layering one word on top of the other to build this crescendo to say, do not miss this point. And let me prop it up in a number of ways. He talks about power. But it's not just power, right? It is the greatness of his power. But it's not just the greatness of his power. It's the immeasurable greatness of his power. According to his great might that he worked. And how great is it? When he raised him, Jesus, from the dead. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead is available to you. If you are in Jesus, you put your hope and trust in him. And do you think, Paul's trying to make a point here. Do not miss this and think this is just a little bit of power. It is the power to live a life that honors God. 
it is the power to live a life that can overcome the temptations that we face. It's the power to live a life that finds God in some of the hardest moments. And the same power that it took to raise Jesus from the dead, it's available to you. You know who I think gets this? Let me just back up one. You know who I think gets this? Addicts. I think people who have struggled with an addiction for years and sometimes maybe even decades have hit rock bottom and they've tried, but they discover that that addiction is more powerful than their own willpower and then eventually turn in the direction of the God who is a higher power named Jesus and then find freedom from that, they get this. What is the first step of recovery? To realize that my life has become unmanageable and to recognize that there is a power greater than myself who can set me free. And of those that I've met who have walked down that road and celebrate the freedom from that, never once have I heard somebody say, yeah, and finally I got my act together. They'll point at something bigger than them, something more powerful than them. And Paul is saying, man, I pray that you would know and experience the power that is available to you. And seated him, Jesus, at his right hand, God's hand, in the heavenly places, far above all the rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only at this age, but at the age to come. And Paul's doing the exact same thing of layering those words, saying, wherever you turn for your power, let me tell you where Jesus is. And he's in the heavenly places, far above every rule, authority, power, dominion. He's greater than any Pharaoh. He's greater than any Caesar. He's greater than any president. He's greater than any prime minister. He's greater than any organization or wherever you might turn, Jesus is greater and he's above all. So here's what Paul is praying for them. I pray that you would see what God sees so that you apply all that you have in Jesus, not just know it in your head, but that you would experience it in your life. And then he's got one more thing to say. And he put all things under his feet, Jesus' feet, and gave him as a head over all things, notice this, to the church. Not even here over the church, Jesus over the church, but here to the church. What this means is the one who loves us above all is available to all in a relationship with him, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And the idea of fullness is that the image of Jesus would become evident and clear. And what he's talking about here is if we understand who we are in Jesus and we apply what we have in him, that there is a transformation that takes place where more and more Jesus is seen in someone's life. And this is just you know, one person's take. You know what the world needs now? Is to see more of Jesus in the heart and lives of real people. And to experience what it means to live life, understanding who we are through God's eyes and living out day by day the things that we discover in that relationship. 
And if your faith has gotten dry and stale and maybe, you know, you become, and this is a bit of my story, but I grew up in an environment where faith really was, okay, here are all the things you need to do and the ways that you need to toe the line. And you know what that made in my life? Dryness and staleness and judgmentalism and a sense of arrogance of being better and superior to others. And that is not the kind of faith that Paul is talking about here. He's talking about a living, thriving faith that is fueled by the reality of all that God has accomplished and all that he seeks to do in us. And even in the most difficult circumstances, it is something that can be real and living and active. And so if we're looking for a fuel for faith, it's found down this road that we wouldn't just know something, but that we would experientially understand it. I pray that you would see what God sees and apply all that you have in Jesus so that Jesus is formed in you. And after holding up the mirror, Paul prays for people that he cares about, and those are his words. So let me ask you this question. What fuels my faith? What fuels your faith? And we can engage the whole faith idea in the spiritual arena with this sense that, well, if there's a God, you know, I need to get serious and need to toe the line. I need to do all the things right. And that's one way. Paul says, here's my prayer for you. That you would see what God sees. And live everything that you have so that Jesus would be more fully formed in you. And that's a fuel for a faith that is alive and well. Would you bow your heads together with me? And as I pray today, I want to pray Paul's prayer over us, over you and me. God, would you help us to see what you see? Would you give us the undistorted view of what it means to belong to you? And God, help us to, to live it in a way that applies to our lives, that is experiential in nature. And just as in the Old Testament, it says, taste and see that the Lord is good may not just live as information in our heads, but as a life-giving fuel in our hearts for journeying with you day by day. And God, may the end result of all of that be that there would be more of the image of Jesus formed in these hearts and lives of ours. And let that just be to your honor and to your glory. And let there be gratitude in who we are and how we respond. And so we ask and pray all of this, Jesus, in your name and for your sake. Amen.